who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So that last little bit there at the end of the book here is sort of a a quick little tack on by our author, right? Because you remember that um, Hebrews originally was probably some kind of sermon or some kind of oral address. And so really at the very end of verse 21 is probably where the sermon ended. And now at the very end, because it's in written form, the author is just adding this little bit here to send it off to his readers. And so um, the part of the issue here is that you know, we don't know a lot about the author of Hebrews. So there's, you know, there's a lot of unknown and a lot of questions regarding these last couple verses as to exactly what they mean historically and, and who's being talked about and, and who the recipients are and that kind of thing. Um, but I don't want to spend our time this morning focusing so much on the stuff we don't know for sure. I want to focus on the stuff that we do know, which is in verses 20 and 21. Because it's here in these couple of verses, this this benediction at the very end of the book, that we have our author summarizing everything in this book. And that's why these are great verses to end on. Because this morning, this is our last time looking at the book of Hebrews. We're we're wrapping up the whole series now. This is our conclusion. And so we want to do a kind of recap of what's been in this book. And that's why these verses are great to end on, because the author of Hebrews is doing a recap of the book. And so these these last few verses break into two pieces. And the first piece is justification, or salvation. And the second piece is sanctification. That's what our author is talking about here in this benediction. Justification and sanctification. And that has been, really, if you will, the big picture outline of the book of Hebrews, right? Because chapters 1 through 10 of the book were all about the doctrine of Christ, showing how he is superior to everything in the Old Testament and how he completed our salvation for us. And then the second part of the book, from the end of chapter 10 all the way up to the point that we're at now, has been sanctification. It's been, in light of the gospel, how should we then live, Right? And so that has been the structure of the book. And that's why our author is ending this way. He's ending with these grand statements about salvation and our response to salvation. And we're going to look at what he has to say about that here this morning. So firstly then, let's look at the salvation in the book of Hebrews. Here's specifically what he says in verse 20. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, By the blood of the eternal covenant. So there we have a brief description of who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's just a brief summary statement of Hebrews chapter 1 through chapter 10. 
So we really need to talk about Hebrews 1 through 10 again and remind ourselves about everything that the author of Hebrews has been saying about Jesus. And I realize now we're, we're summarizing about 20 weeks worth of stuff. Right, so we're just going to hit this in big picture sweep here. You remember that when we started in Hebrews, I was emphasizing the fact that there are several major sections to the book of Hebrews, or several main points. And the first of those points was that Christ was superior to the prophets. Right? You remember that? Christ superior to the prophets. That was the author of Hebrews' first point that he wanted to make. And the reason why he stressed that point is he wanted to talk about the Old Testament prophets. And he said that the Old Testament prophets preached the same message as the book of Hebrews. Right? The Old Testament prophets preached about the coming Messiah. They preached about all the, the salvation that he was going to accomplish. The prophets preached that God was going to bring salvation to his people. But that's all they did. Right? The prophets didn't actually bring salvation. They didn't bring any full, final, lasting salvation for God's people. Rather, what their function was, was to proclaim that God would save his people. Right? The prophets preached that God would deliver. But the author of Hebrews comes along and says, yes, what the prophets were doing was good, it was right, it was what God called them to do. But the prophets only preached about salvation. Jesus is the greater prophet. Because Jesus didn't just preach about salvation. He did do that. He was like the prophets in that he preached about salvation. But that's not all he did. Because Jesus actually accomplished salvation. Right? He didn't just talk about it. He didn't just predict it. He accomplished salvation. And Jesus didn't just proclaim the word of God. We learn in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the word of God. He is the self-revelation of God. And further, Jesus created all things. He is the heir of all things. He is the radiance and exact imprint of God's nature. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. Right? That's all the stuff that the author of Hebrews is talking about when he's saying why Jesus is greater than the prophets. The prophets were human beings who declared a message. Jesus actually accomplished what the prophets were saying God would do. And so Jesus is greater than the prophets. The second major point in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than the angels. And so there was a progression there moving in the book. Right? Christ is greater than human prophets. Okay, we got that. Well, now how about is Christ greater than the angels? Because the angels are divine beings. They are in the very presence of God. They live in heaven with him. Is Jesus greater than angels? Yeah, he is. And the author of Hebrews then uses Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7, two very important Old Testament passages to show that Jesus would be the coming king, that Jesus would be the son of David who would accomplish salvation, that Jesus is worthy of worship. He says that angels are ministering spirits, but that Christ is God. And he also says that Christ is not only true God, but that Christ is true man. And so that he can be true man to suffer for his people. All of those things are things that angels can't do. Angels do not receive worship. Jesus does. 
Angels could not become true human beings with human natures to suffer for God's people. And yet that is precisely what God the Son did. Right? So Jesus is superior to the angels. Thirdly, Jesus is superior to Moses. Right? So now he's not only superior to the human prophets. He's not only superior to the angels, the divine beings. But now he is superior to Moses. One of the chief figures of the Old Testament. The mediator of the Old Covenant. And Jesus is superior to Moses because Moses led the children of Israel out of human slavery and led them into a physical land of Canaan, which they lost. All of that was supposed to point forward to the true Moses. The one who would come later, who would save the people of Israel from a whole lot more than just physical slavery. In fact, in Scripture, Moses and Jesus are purposefully designed to be patterned after each other. Because you think about Moses' story. Moses, when he was in Egypt, his birth account sounds strangely like Jesus's. Because when Moses was born... All of the male children in Egypt were being slaughtered. Well, think about when Jesus was born. What happened when Jesus was born? All the male children were being slaughtered. Jesus and Moses both went through a kind of baptism. Moses in the Red Sea, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, and Jesus in the Jordan River. And then right after undergoing this baptism, they went into the wilderness for trial. Moses went into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. Their lives are patterned after each other. Moses proclaimed the law of God from Sinai. Jesus proclaimed the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount. So there you've got two figures very clearly following each other's pattern. But Jesus is the greater Moses, according to the author of Hebrews, because what Moses did is he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt from physical slavery and brought them to a physical Jerusalem. What Jesus does is he does something greater, something better, is he brings us out of spiritual slavery and he brings us into a lasting new Jerusalem. That unshakable kingdom described in Hebrews chapter 12 that cannot be taken from us. Israel lost their Jerusalem. But God's people never lose the real Jerusalem to which that earthly one has always been pointing. And that's why Jesus is greater than Moses. The covenant that he mediates is better. Fourthly, Christ is not only superior to prophets, angels, and Moses, but Christ is also superior to the Old Testament priesthood. And we saw that there were sort of two two kinds of priesthoods that were being discussed in, in Hebrews. This is chapters 4 through 7. And we saw firstly that Jesus is superior to Aaron's priesthood. Not because you remember that Aaron had to undergo three qualifications to be high priest, according to the author of Hebrews. Three qualifications. He had to be a human male. He had to suffer on behalf of God's people. And he had to be called by God. Jesus fulfills those qualifications of being a high priest. But the problem is, Jesus is not after the line of Aaron. Jesus is not even a Levite. 
He was not of the tribe of Levi. So how can he be a priest? And furthermore, how could he be a priest that is superior to the Old Testament priesthood? Because he's not of that tribe. He doesn't qualify. And this is where the author of Hebrews brings us to the Old Testament passage that says that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of, not Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Because our author goes on to explain that Melchizedek's priesthood, right, that, that guy who shows up in the story of Abraham, Abraham pays tithes to him. Right? Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. Because the Levites were descendants of Abraham, and Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek the priest. Meaning that the Levites submit to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Old Testament Levite priesthood. Why? Because the Levites couldn't attain forgiveness of sins. Their priesthood was based on physical ancestry. But Melchizedek's priesthood, Jesus' priesthood, is a priesthood that never ends. Jesus is a sinless priest. And in fact, Jesus offers not a sacrificial lamb for his priesthood, but Jesus himself climbs up onto the altar and slaughters himself as the sacrifice. And so you can see Jesus' priesthood is far superior. It's not based on physical ancestry. It actually accomplishes what it's set out to do. Namely, to provide lasting, full forgiveness of sins. And so that's how the author of Hebrews explains to us that Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. And then fifthly and finally, the last of the, the doctrinal sections of the book of Hebrews, as it explains justification, as it explains the work of Christ, is that Christ is superior to the Old Covenant. And we saw this in chapters 8 and 9. And here, the author of Hebrews walks us through a number of important institutions of the Old Covenant to show how Christ fulfills those things. We see that Jesus is a better sacrifice than the bulls and the goats offered in the Old Testament. Why? Because his sacrifice actually accomplishes forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament sacrifices were merely a reminder of sins each year. Jesus actually accomplishes forgiveness. Jesus is a better temple. We've seen this one too. This was in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. That Jesus was a better temple. Why? Because like in the Old Covenant, you have the priests. And the priests, would, when they would go into the tent, they would offer blood. Sprinkle it on the altar. And what the purpose of that was to do was it was to consecrate the place. It was to consecrate the tabernacle, to consecrate the temple. And the author of Hebrews says, just as the high priest would go into the holy place and consecrate the tent, so Jesus went into heaven and consecrated heaven with his blood that he offered on the cross. And so the whole point of all of that, the temple... And the priestly rituals that were going on. Those things were designed by God to point forward to the work of Christ that was coming in the future. It's not like God just liked putting all that stuff together for no reason. 
If he designed the tabernacle and designed the sacrifices and designed the ceremonial laws just because he felt like being really particular and picky. No, that's not why God did it. He did it because all of it has a purpose. It all has a function, a didactic function, a teaching function to point his people to Christ. That was the whole purpose of the Old Covenant. It was to point the people of Israel to Christ. It had its function. And so that's how the author of Hebrews then walks us through that Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant. Because the whole Old Covenant was pointing forward to him in the first place. Alright, so that takes us then to the end of the doctrinal section of Hebrews. That's the justification section. That's the section that our author is summarizing here in chapter 13, verse 20, when he says that Christ is the one who died according to the eternal covenant. But now notice what our author does in verse 21. He says, verse 20, Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, here it is right here, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You notice there that transition. Because there, at the first point, he's saying, here's Jesus. That's chapters 1 through 10. And then he says, now may God equip you to do his will. There's the response. There's sanctification, if you will. And we saw that shift in Hebrews at the end of chapter 10, where the author transitions from telling us about Christ to now telling us what we ought to do in light of being told what Christ has done for us. In light of our salvation, how then should we live? And we saw over a period of several weeks that our author explains that our response as believers to all of this magisterial doctrine of Christ is to follow Christ's example by doing the Father's will, to worship God with reverence and awe, both corporately and in all of life, as we seek to glorify Him in everything we do, and to obey and to support our leaders. And we saw all of those application points just coming out, rolling out from our understanding of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And you'll notice this is the pattern throughout all of Scripture, is it not? We have the theology, and then we have the application. We have the gospel, and then we have the fruit of the gospel. We have doctrine, and then we have worship. That's the biblical pattern. That's what we see. That's what the author of Hebrews does throughout this whole epistle. But now I want us to focus on something here as we bring this all to a close. Okay? So we've now summarized the entire book in, a, in you know, 20 minutes or so. But now look very closely at what our author says here. Does he say, Now may you equip yourselves with everything good that you may do God's will? No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. 
So you notice what's being said here. He's not saying that now that God has provided salvation, he's left it up to you to figure out how you're going to live a godly life. No. You, your sanctification, your working as a believer is a product of God working in you through Jesus Christ. Do you see him saying that? In other words, don't think about sanctification as if it's you do this work and then the Holy Spirit will sanctify you. It's the other way around. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and the fruit of that is that you're going to do his work. It's the other way around. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. The Spirit of Christ is at work in you. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus Christ is at work in you. Now, how can Christ do that? How can he be at work in you and in me to do the work of the Father? It is because, verse 20, he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, we read that phrase, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. And we might think, oh, that's a, that's a nice phrase, and keep moving, keep, keep going on in the text. But we want to stop on that phrase for a second, because that phrase ought to remind us of some things. I think, first and foremost, it should remind us of Psalm 23. You remember what Psalm 23 says? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in, the, in Psalm 23, in the Hebrew text, it says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. But that's not all we read about shepherds in the Old Testament. Psalm 23 is not the only place where we hear about that. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. It says, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Here, Ezekiel 34, 15. I myself, this is Yahweh himself speaking. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares Yahweh God. So when the author of Hebrews calls Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He's not just using a cute illustration. He is imposing a divine title on Jesus. He is putting a divine title on Christ, the Son of God. He is saying, Jesus is Yahweh. And it is because Jesus is Yahweh, because Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, that he is not just concerned with providing salvation, for providing eternal salvation, but he is also concerned with always being at work in us even once we are saved. To work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so all of these exhortations that we have seen in the book of Hebrews, as we have brought this book to a close, are not exhortations whereby we are just supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do them on our own. But rather, it is Christ himself, God Almighty, through the power of his spirit, 
working in us to do those things. Our obedience in our Christian life is the result of the work of the Spirit. Not the cause of the Spirit coming. That's an essential distinction. And that is wonderful. That is good news, isn't it? Because this is exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where he says that God has provided for us everything we need for life and godliness. And what is that thing that he has provided? It is his Son, through his Spirit, working in us, willing to do his good pleasure. See how great Christ is? Do you see how even in commands to Christians, the doctrine of Christ is exalted in the book of Hebrews? If you remember one thing from this series as we have walked through this book verse by verse, trying to understand the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God here, if you remember one thing from this series, then remember that Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, superior to everything. There's nothing else we could ever want. He's at work in us to justify us. He's at work in us to sanctify us. He's at work in us to bring us to the new Jerusalem, to that unshakable kingdom that we all anxiously await. And praise God for that work of Christ. Let's pray as we close this series. Oh God, we thank you this morning for Christ. Lord, we thank you that um, he, through his spirit, is at work in us. Oh God, we pray that you would continue to work in us through Christ Jesus. That you would teach us your gospel. That you would teach us your law. And that you would continue to work in our hearts so that we continue more and more to learn progressively to delight more and more in your law as your people. And so, Lord, as we have heard now all of this great teaching of Christ this morning from Hebrews, Lord, pray that you would use this to fill us with a passion and motivation to step into your sanctuary this morning, to sing to you and to pray to you, to praise you, and to hear your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have today to come and worship you. I pray that we would do it with reverence and with awe. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.